All right. Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We've got an awesome show for you today. We start today with the homeless housing challenge facing Metro Vancouver today. The sprawling tent city on Hastings Street in the downtown east side. The brutal violence we're seeing on the streets. The deadly shooting rampage in Langley. A person set on fire on the streets of the downtown east side. A police-involved shooting in that neighborhood the other day. And now, look what happened yesterday. The long-serving head of BC Housing, he said he's seen enough. He's out of here. Shane Ramsey, citing the violence and the homelessness that he's witnessing, he says it pushed him over the edge, and he's retiring. He also cited the public anger and uproar over that 13-story social housing tower in Kitsilano, too. He said he was swarmed and threatened at a public meeting on this project. So that's one of the other reasons that he is stepping away from BC Housing. All right, let's discuss these issues now with our panel. Bill Thielman, he's running for Vancouver City Council uh, this fall. Pleased to welcome him back. Bill, thank you for coming on. Thanks, Mike. Sean Orr is a political columnist for Scout Magazine. He is also running for City Council this fall. Hey, Sean. Hello. Okay, thank you, gentlemen, to both of you for coming on. Bill, let me go to you first. Let's start with uh, this resignation by Shane Ramsey, the head of BC Housing. Do you think this is the real reason he's resigning? Because he, he's just decided he, he's not the guy to fix these problems and he got swarmed and harassed at a public meeting? Do you think that's the real reason he's quitting? No, I don't. And, and if that's what happened, I, I totally disagree with people threatening uh, people at a city hall or anywhere else. I mean, so that would be unfortunate if that's true. I just don't know if, uh, if what happened is exactly as described. But look, Shane Ramsey's whole board got fired by David Eby. Uh, the, in, uh, the investigation by auditing firm looked at it, said there was a series of inappropriate and inadequate controls and measures on BC housing. And then within the month, yeah. uh, Shane, Shane Ramsey paid $394,000 to apparently not do a great job, resigned. So I think he's looking for an out and, and decided to go out that way and make more, okay. more noise about it. Were you at that meeting where he says he was swarmed? I was, I was watching it online and I saw yeah. him interrupted by Councillor Colleen Hardwick uh, from team who I'm running with, just to be clear, um, because he called people who were opposed NIMBYs and you're not supposed to insult uh, anyone in your address to council. And then I gather some, there was some kind of a uh, altercation with people outside the hallway of the city council meeting, but I, I didn't see the actual altercation. Sean Orr, what do you think about the tone of this debate that we have going on here right now when it comes to homelessness and social housing? And you got the head of this organization saying he was swarmed and threatened. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, the tone is clearly toxic. It's not made better by um, some of the rhetoric around the media and some of the rhetoric around uh, wealthy homeowners in the West Side. Um, blocking housing, and uh, I don't know what what Bill wants to be called or what these people want to be called. If they're not NIMBYs, then I don't know we have a preferred uh, um, name to call them, but um, it, that's exactly what they're doing. They're blocking housing in a crisis when we need housing everywhere across the city, not just in the downtown east side. Bill, what do you say to that? 
Well, I don't think calling people NIMBYs or YIMBYs is the opposite, yes, in my backyard. Calling people names isn't helpful. We're neighbors. Uh, we're good neighbors. And, you know, the Arbutus housing 13-story uh, high-density, you know, concrete tower proposal there has been passed. It wasn't uh, passed against the overwhelming objections of the Kitsilano neighborhood, the nearby neighborhood. It's, it's 60 feet from a school. It's uh, way over height for that neighborhood. We're very, very dense. And I don't think it's, it helps... Uh, I don't think it's, it uh, does a great service to people who may need that kind of housing to put them in kind of a giant warehouse there in an area where they, it's not, they're not going to fit in. I think there's all sorts of, there's over 13 different social housing projects in Kitsilano. I don't think anybody said no social housing anywhere in Kitsilano. They said this is an inappropriate building in an inappropriate place, uh, and it should have been uh, more distributed out through a couple, two, three, four different housing units, but they just, BC Housing and the BC government just insisted on putting it there uh, against the objections of the community. Sean Orr, what do you say to that? Well, I mean, if he's against warehousing people, then what do you call the downtown east side? It's essentially what we're doing in SROs. We're warehousing people. I'm sure he doesn't mind that. It's just interesting that the comfortably housed always have an opinion on what's best for the unhoused or the almost unhoused. And um, I just think this is a crisis. I think um, we need, yeah, great. Like, like maybe Bill's right. We need to spread it out all through Kitsilano, all through Point Grey, all through Marple. Um, maybe I mean I, I don't I don't disagree with him there because I Bill, mean, this this is a this is a failure uh, on all levels, and it's a failure to build housing. And if 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 there's that many people to even warehouse 129 units, and that says that we're at crisis levels and we need to start doing something. And if I'm elected to council, we'll, we'll waive hearings on social housing projects. Bill, what do you think of that idea? Well, I don't, I don't agree with that at all. I, I don't, I, not waiving house, uh, public hearings. I mean, I think a public hearing is the citizens' one chance, one opportunity to look at a proposal, where it's going, how it be built, what's going on there, and say, uh, I have a problem or I support it. In many cases, uh, some people will support that as well. That's not the thing. But, uh, I mean, I think <clears throat> Sean and I are not way off. We, we do have a... A homeless crisis, we have an opioid addiction crisis, we have a homelessness crisis around, and there are ways that we can help that. But the problem was, BC Housing and the city and the province uh, were adamant on this one, and the, it should have never got to council. It's it's the kind of proposal that was wrong from the get-go, and that's the real yeah. problem. So instead of coming up with any alternatives, they just bullheadedly pushed it through against the objections of, of, of experts who said it was the wrong thing to do, of uh, former uh, chief or uh, provincial judge Tom Gove, who is an awesome expert on, on issues of homelessness, poverty, etc. Uh, Julian Summers from, from SFU, experts and the community said don't do it, and they just went ahead anyway. And that's the problem with this council. They don't listen. John, or what do you think about the way that the debate is being framed, especially when it comes to the problems we're seeing on the street? We've talked about this before, some of the violence we're seeing on the street. I mean, this brutal, deadly shooting rampage we saw in Langley. We saw a poor person set on fire on the streets of the downtown east side. I mean, do you connect the dots in some of these incidents that we're seeing happening and saying this is somehow linked to these, you know, these angry public meetings we're seeing over social housing? Sure, yeah. It's um, it's definitely connected. I'm not, you can't, like, draw the line directly, but it's part of not a failure of capitalism, but capitalism's working directly as intended. They were, it's intended to pit us against each other. Right? It's intended to pit homeowners against renters. 
it's it's intended to pit the comfortably housed against the unhoused, and we're just seeing that play out. Like this is this is not a failure of the of of capitalism. It's, it's exactly what it's intended to do. The market is just unable to build what needs to be done. It's unable to build supportive housing. It's unwilling to. And we need bold, radical action on a massive scale to do this. And I don't see um, Bill's party doing that. I, I see him protecting his own interests, the interests of property owners, property values. And I don't see them seeing bold ideas, you know, expropriating housing where, where it doesn't work, you know, real vacancy control, Taxing mansions, you know. I see him as, you know, look, look at yesterday. We've got Bill, we've got, uh, sorry, uh, Chip Wilson donating hundreds of thousands of dollars to try and defeat socialism, to try and protect his own interests, to protect the, the interests Good. of the elite. And I, and sorry, Bill, but I just see you as part of the elite. Bill, what do you say to that? Well, it depends on how you define elite. I guess I'm fortunate to be a homeowner in Vancouver, and I make no bones about that. But, look, I I think some of the things that Sean's talking about have been happening. The provincial government has bought up a number of uh, slum landlord hotels and fixed them up, and and Portland Hotel Society and others are running them. But um, he's right. I mean, in terms of warehousing, there's there's too much of that going on, and it's focused on the downtown east side, and it's not working. I mean, that's one of the problems. I think that we really can see. We saw the tent city on East Hastings, which should should not have happened uh, under under Mayor Kennedy Stewart's uh, benign neglect. And those kind of things don't help the people down on the downtown east side either. So, you know, are there some measures that should be taken immediately? Yes, but how, have we spent billions of dollars unsuccessfully on dealing with homelessness, same with uh, yeah. with other issues down there? Absolutely. And, and I think that, uh, and what I would hope to see is a full reexamination of the policies that the city has pursued, as well as the province and the federal government, because they're not working. All right, we're talking about the homeless housing crisis in Vancouver, the battle over the social housing tower in Kitsilano. My guests are Bill Thielman and Sean Orr. They are both running for city council this fall. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898 on your cell. Let's go to Jennifer on the line calling from Surrey. Hi, Jennifer. Go ahead. Hey, good morning, Mike. I called you a couple of days ago. I'm a, I'm a, patient transfer driver we we take people home from hospitals and all that kind of stuff i took a whole a lady uh to the downtown east side to the insight um housing place yesterday she's been in hospital she's trying to get off uh drugs i got i drove down that hastings street a couple of blocks there it was like another world and you know we don't we don't those folks don't want a a tower in their neighborhood, you should put all those folks on a bus and get them to go down to the the downtown east side and see how horrible and disgusting and sad and angry it should make them that these people are living in in the conditions that they are living with. This woman will probably uh, get back on drugs because her front door looks out onto, onto that disaster that is the downtown east side. And I don't blame the people who live there. I blame government, I blame you, I blame me, I blame everybody else who has a home to go to and a job to go to and family, and they're not struggling like they are. It was horrible. And, okay. we, you know, what, what is the government doing? Nothing. Yeah, Jennifer, this thank, crisis thank. has been going on for years. Thank you for a great call. I appreciate your perspective on it. Bill, what do you say to her? 
Well, Jennifer's right. I mean, we're spending hundreds of millions of dollars a year to put people in in conditions which are at best inhumane, and so and it's not working. So we can't keep doing that. And the idea of replicating that kind of system in other places, uh, regardless of the well intentions that are there, is not going to work. We have to we have to find a better situation, a better solution than just doing what's what. What? So done. you mean you mean that the thirteen story tower yeah, in Kitsilano I mean, is re- replicating the downtown east side? Yeah, yeah, it should be mixed housing. It should give people a different sense of community. It should be much smaller, and we should have more more of these facilities. Uh, I, I've lived next to a couple of them in Kitsilano that people wouldn't even notice at this point. But but making it into a giant sore thumb in the neighborhood and expecting people will do well there is just a mistake. Sean, what do you say to that? It's flabbergasting that um, he's saying that housing people will make it look like unhoused people because what we're seeing in the downtown east side is unhoused people. So putting them in housing would make that not a situation. It's just, it's, it's unbelievable Shani, the, that you the think The driver that. just said that she, she dropped the woman off at her house, mm-hmm. and it was a disaster along Hastings, which I think you and I could agree on. It, it, it's an absolute disaster down there. Right, which is why we need more projects like the one at Seventh and Arbutus, not less. Okay, let's go to Dave on the line in Kitsilano. Hi, Dave, go ahead. Morning, gentlemen. Sean and Mr. Gentleman, um, both running for council, Okay. This goes back to like 2002 with the Woodward Squat. It goes down with the anti-poverty group. We here on the West Coast have a warm climate. People come from all over. Members of Saskatchewan sent B- people to BC on a bus ticket. You go, you go to BC. It's going to be a handout. First and foremost, both you gentlemen, you have to understand this is a health crisis. They need help. Yes, deplorable situations, SROs. The housing project in Kitsilano. I'm in the neighborhood, Mr. Chairman. Right or wrong, it got passed. People got threatened, which is all wrong, which is the wrong way to go about it. We need to have this throughout Greater Vancouver, the Lower Mainland, from Abbotsford so so to Dave, Point Grey. Hey, Dave, so you support the housing tower in Kitsilano where you live, correct? In that neighborhood, I don't live across the street from it. I live very close. And uh, you know what? They got to go somewhere. What it's going to do if they don't get help? If they don't get the um, sources they need, it's going to be it's going to bring crime. I know that. Bill, and all Bill, the what do, residents. Bill, what do you say? I've just got a minute left. I'll give you guys thirty seconds each here to yeah, sum yeah, up. Yeah, thanks. Well, look, it, the wrong model, the wrong place, the wrong uh, the wrong mix of people in that building not going to help the people who need it the most. It should not have got to council. There should be a more distributed smaller scale and, and better serviced series of housing for homeless people, not this giant concrete tower. Sean, what do you say? You get the last word here. It's a crisis. Uh, it's never going to be the right place for, for, for the west side. They're always going to oppose it. Uh, we need bold solutions. We need, we need to think really big here, large scale. Uh, we need to get these people off the streets because it does cost us in the long run. It costs us more to have people on the streets than in houses. And, and your caller is right. It's a health crisis. It's a responsibility of all levels of government, and it's a responsibility of the city council right. as well. All right, guys, thank you for a good discussion. I appreciate it as always. All right, let's continue talking about the homeless housing challenge that we face in Vancouver, especially the conditions right now. And on the downtown east side, it is the poorest neighborhood in Canada. 
And you may have seen the photos and videos of the sprawling tent city that has sprung up there on Hastings Street. The situation seems to be getting worse. On last week's show, I interviewed Vancouver's fire chief, who has ordered the removal of tents and structures in that neighborhood. Hasn't been done yet. Uh, as far as I know, it's still down there. I also spoke to Ralph Kaisers on the show this week, the president of the Vancouver Police Union. Police were involved in a shooting down there. Uh, they say one of their police officers was attacked. A man was shot by police and survived. That man was uh, charged for assaulting police. Have a listen to this now. I got Michael Clegg standing by to discuss this. Have a listen to what Ralph Kaiser said to me here now. Veteran police officer who's worked in that neighborhood for many, many years and how he thinks it's it's getting worse down there. Here's what he said to me. I've been a police officer. I'm a sergeant here in the Vancouver Police Department and have been a member for about 30 years, born and raised in the city of Vancouver. And I, for years earlier in my career, worked uh, specifically in the downtown east side myself. It is worse today than it has ever been. For one, it's dangerous. It's hazardous. Um, uh, this encampment that's uh, now built up on the uh, sidewalk in the 100 East Hastings certainly affect public personal safety. I know, was it last week or the week before, some poor gentleman that lives down there was trying to make his way through the sidewalk in his wheelchair. He's disabled. And someone took offense to him being there and trying to get through the sidewalk and stabbed him in the back twice. All right, that's Ralph Kaiser. He's the president of the Vancouver Police Officers Union on the show earlier this week. Let's discuss this now with my guest, Michael Clegg. Michael is the former director of the Carnegie Community Center in the neighborhood. I highly recommend his op-ed recently published in the Vancouver Sun. Give me a follow on Twitter. You'll find the link there. Michael, thank you for coming on today. Thank you. Hey, Michael, can you quickly tell me about the Carnegie Community Center? Can you remind the listeners uh, about the facility there, what you guys do there? Yes, it's at Maine and Hastings, and it's a former library of 100-plus years ago. It provides seven days a week, um, uh, open every day of the week, uh, services to the community of a social, recreational, educational, and uh, nature, and also uh, food. I think it's a critical services provided down there for sure. And thank you for all the time you spent working down there. Michael, let's talk about the situation in the neighborhood right now. How would you describe the conditions there at the moment? I mean, we just heard from the president of the police officers union there saying it's the worst he's ever seen. Do you agree with him? I do. It is. And I think if you were to talk to people on the street, you'd find the same response. It's not a good situation. How would you how would you describe it for people? Like if, if people were to go down there right now, what would they see? Well, visually, it's overwhelming. Just uh, Waldo, it's high density tent city, um, yeah. not just along Hastings Street, but now uh, moving into the adjoining streets as well. And uh, it's uh, it's it's quite honestly a situation which can only make a person very angry. What do you think about the order by the fire chief to clear out the tents and the structures there on Hastings? I note that there are community activists who are opposing this and saying the tent city should not be removed. What do you think of that order to take it out? Well, I think we have to think uh, beyond the order as well. There's no doubt that it's a hazard uh, to the people that live there, first and foremost. And so I'm sure that the 
the conclusion of the police of the fire chief is accurate. Um, but to order it just to move is just moving, as we know, the situation with exactly the same problem to another part of the area. We have we've traveled from uh, Crab Park to Oppenheimer Park to Strathcona Park in this moving um, tent city uh, uh, dilemma. And so it won't change unless something much more much more urgent and substantive is taken. So you don't think they should remove the tent city then by force? Well, I don't like doing anything by force. Um, oh. My suggestion would be that that uh, you don't just remove it. You've got a plan. And I hear that the city is working on contingency plans and so on. But I think it has to be a, uh, um, a very uh, tightly coordinated and collaborative effort amongst all of the parties that are there because simply to relocate it without having the backup alternatives is is really not a responsible action. Speaking of Michael Clegg... Sorry, I'm simply going to add, in other words, it will simply recreate the same situation with the same risk and hazard somewhere else in the area. Michael Clegg is the former director of the Carnegie Community Centre in the downtown east side. A lot of people point to the decision by Vancouver police to stop accompanying city sanitation workers in the neighborhood there on these so-called street sweeps where city workers would go in, they'd clear the streets, they'd remove garbage from the sidewalk in the streets, remove tents and illegal structures accompanied by the police. And when the police stopped accompanying them about a, a, a few weeks ago, it seems like that's when this started. That's when this tent city started. Do you think that was oh, the start start of it? No, no. The tent city's been accumulating. Well, actually, it's been accumulating for years. And before the tent started popping up there, of course, people were out on that street every day, um, buying, selling, socializing, whatever happened, because... The SRO rooms are many of them are so inadequate, or they don't have any any room at all. So, I mean, in a way, the police. I I agree with the police that this is ultimately not an enforcement matter. It's a matter of providing proper supports and services. <clears throat> it also means, however, that the city workers are at risk. So we need quite a different approach. And I I just want to add though that. I'm, I know the city is not unmindful of this. They've been working very hard to provide the necessary supports and accommodation. But what's happened is we've had such a backlog of lack of support over the years and an increase in the number of people needing it that that we're being overwhelmed. And it requires a response at a scale that uh, requires provincial leadership in partnership with the city and uh, and the community and the agencies. And I also think it should really focus on the people who are most vulnerable and most in need, whose mental health and physical conditions are are the most severe. That That's where it should begin. Where do you think all the people are, are coming from that are in this tent city right now? It seems to be getting bigger. Like we heard a call on the open line earlier, and I hear this quite frequently, and I'm I'm certain you have as well, that you know, people come from other parts of Canada or they they come to Vancouver because of 
the climate or there are more handouts, as, as a caller put it earlier today. Do you think, I mean, you probably know better than anyone as a guy who's been sort of on the front lines of this. Is that, is that, is that true? Like, do people come from other parts of Canada? Are they drawn to this neighborhood if they're homeless or they're drug or addicted to drugs? Um, it's, it's a mixed answer to that because yes, yes, <laughs> one can say it does draw people. Um, weather is, is a factor as well. But let, let's also be very clear about it that, that uh, these are conditions that prevail in all cities. And if I'm just talking about the province, we need to be addressing these, these, the sources of these conditions province-wide. That's where the leadership's needed in every single community of B.C. Um, because it's true, you go down downtown east side, as I said in the column, and you'll find someone from Bella Coola and you'll find someone from Dunbar. Um, who's there? But I just do want to stress, maybe come back to it later, that that let's not objectify. And even as tough as it is, and as challenging as some of the people are who live there, these are human beings, and we have to think first and foremost of how to support them. Yeah, and do you think that there's too much of that going on? Like there's too much like you call it objectifying people who are on the streets or, you know, I've had people say that homeless people are vilified and hated on and we're seeing some of the results of it with, with the violence on the streets. I mean, we saw this brutal, deadly shooting rampage in Langley. We saw we saw a woman set on fire the other day yeah. in, the, in the neighborhood. I mean, do you think that, you know, there's there's too much hating going on? Oh, there is indeed. Um and I suspect that some of that is coming from people who feel kind of vulnerable or threatened themselves. You know, their own situation may be precarious. But it comes from others that I certainly can understand to, to, to look at Hastings Street now as though you're seeing it for the first time. is a real wallet. I mean, it, it visually just knocks you off your feet <laughs> practically. And you can understand people, people's reaction. They well, what's going on here? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You've already touched on a lot of the the solutions in your mind. Like, bottom line, it is it, this requires a massive infusion of money, and, and infusion of money and redirection of money. I, I'd suggest four things if there's if there's time. Um, one is provincial leadership at at the ministerial level that there's a minister who's responsible for this. Secondly, that a, a, a group is put together from the city, um, the NGO community and the community itself that has authority to set out plans and that there are bureaucrats that are coordinated in an integrated team who work it through the system with, with sufficient authority and financial resources. Two is to uh, focus on those who are most in need, need yeah. 24-7 support. Third is uh, communicate the plans clearly. And uh, fourthly is to stress that this is, this is a transition process and it still will not be, it will still have glitches and problems and people are to expect that. But if we're clear in what the plans are and how they're intended to be carried out, that's important. And lastly, as I just said, homeless people are also a need, are also a community. And believe it or not, you know, so many already contribute to community. They don't have a place to live. 
others would like to, to the extent their physical or mental health conditions permit. Michael, thank you for coming on today with your thoughts. I appreciate it. Thank you for your interest, Mike. All right. Here we go with our big oil profits debate on the show today. Big oil making big bucks here right now. They are making huge profits. Should they be slapped now with a windfall profits tax? That's what many people are demanding here now. Have you seen some of these profits being reported by the big oil companies? Oh, my God, they're raking it in. Exxon, they just reported $17.9 billion in profit. This is in three months. That's a one, that's a one quarter earning report. $17.9 billion. Chevron, $11.6 billion in profit. This is U.S. dollars, by the way. BP, their profits have tripled. $9.6 billion profit in the last quarter. Have a listen to this report here now from NBC News. Here at home, a pair of U.S. oil companies announced record profits Friday. In the second quarter, ExxonMobil reported nearly $18 billion. Chevron recording over $11.5 billion in profits. Soaring energy prices have contributed to record inflation, driving up the cost not only of fuel, but everything from apples to toilet paper. It's leaving some Americans struggling right now to pay for gas and food and other basic necessities. Okay, so the question now is, should these big oil companies face a big tax bill, tax the profits on the oil companies? Some people are demanding that. Democrats in the U.S. Congress are lobbying for that. Here at home, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh has also called for an excessive profits tax. Let's discuss it now. we got both sides of it for you. Cody Battershill is from Canada Action in Alberta, they support the oil sands in Alberta. Hey, Cody. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on again. Peter McCartney is a climate change campaigner at the Wilderness Committee. Hey, Peter. Hey, pleasure to be here. Okay, guys, thank you to both of you for being here once again. Peter, let me go to you first. Uh, an excessive profits tax on oil companies, you support that, right? Absolutely. You know, I think ultimately this is just a question of fairness. Um, people are really struggling to... Uh, to put gas in their vehicles, to get to work, to put food on the table, um, you know, all of the rising uh, rising prices of everything we have that are caused by global uh, supply chain issues, the pandemic, the war in Ukraine, uh, global climate disasters, things that are completely out of their control. And yet these companies are taking advantage of the exact situation that is causing this for people, and they're paying billions of dollars out to their shareholders at a time when Canadians are struggling. So, you know, I think um, you can't look at this situation and say that this is this is working as intended, and we need this excess profit tax to uh, rein in inflation and help people out and help them able to, uh, to afford their daily lives. How much would the tax be in your mind, and how much you know, would it raise? Uh, I think the tax that's been suggested is 50% of... Uh, any excess profits, so whatever the um, these companies have made in the past decade, um, at the moment they're making, you know, up to three times that at this point. Um, and so we would take half of that and, and use it to wow. rebate Canadians so they can uh, they can afford their uh, their daily costs and help make life a little easier on folks. Okay, fifty percent tax. That's a that's a big tax. Cody Battersill, your thoughts? 
Well, I think we need to go back and just look at the facts. So the Canadian oil and gas industry has generated more than a half trillion dollars for our government since the year 2000. This year, it's expected uh, the industry will generate almost $50 billion. That's money going into public funding, public services, our quality of life. It's not just a one-way street here. This is, of course, an industry that's made up of Canadians supporting communities. And we already charge a version of a windfall tax as royalties go up, as prices go up. So Canadians are already getting more from these companies the more they earn. Also, when we're talking about global instability, it's been a lot of the pipeline activism and trying to shut down oil and gas that has in some ways contributed to an over-reliance on countries like Russia that we cannot rely upon, that also have weaker environmental standards, and less investment in Canada. And so as we've done that, we've created these shortfalls of supply. And we're going to need all energy forms for, for decades to come. Oil and gas industry is one of the biggest investors in renewables as well. So there's a lot more to this. I mean, during the pandemic, we weren't taxing excess profits of tech companies. So we really need to just slow down and talk about the net contribution. We all use oil and gas. We all, you know, it's a Canadian uh, industry that we can support. And it's generating huge amounts of money for our government not just a one-way street here. Okay, Peter, what do you say to that? Well, it's all good to think that, uh, you know, the tax money that these companies are breaking in is, um, you know, going to our governments. But the truth is it's not. It's going to higher dividends for their shareholders. Suncor tripled its dividend after it raked in $3 billion in the first three months of this year alone. The top 10 oil and gas companies in this country have made $29 billion in record profits in six months. And that money is going back to their shareholders. It is making the rich richer in this country as the people who are struggling to afford their daily lives are, uh, are left behind. And so, you know, I just, um, I, I, I can't see how you think that as a fair situation, these companies are making record profits and they need to be forced Do you, to, uh, to give a little more Mike, of that back. Go ahead, Cody. Mike, I just, Mike, I just got to jump in. Peter's wrong. He doesn't have the facts straight. Uh, when we look at oil and gas this year, again, it's projected to be $50 billion to our government. So if Peter's talking about $29 billion, well, then that's already almost double what their governments are going to get than the number that Peter just quoted. Um, $29 billion in profit the real estate in six industry, The real estate industry from 2000 to 2019 was $211 billion to Canadian governments. Oil and gas was more than double that. Construction sector, $298 billion. When we go back and look at the facts, number one, pipeline obstructionism and blocking Canadian energy doesn't help people or the planet. Number two, this industry is employing our families and creating tremendous, massive fiscal stimulus for our governments, for our social spending. Peter. You know, I think uh, the really interesting point is about employing people because the main way that these companies are making so much money is they're automating as many jobs as they possibly can. Uh, my friend that works as a mechanic up in the up in the tar sands is now basically just sitting there and uh, maintaining automated trucks as they move tar sands oil around. So they they are putting as many people out of work as possible, and they're getting rich doing it. Hey, um, as for as for Canadian. Uh, taxpayer money, we're spending $25 billion on a pipeline that is a gift to this industry. We could at least claw that back 
in the record profits that they're making. Hey, Peter, do you think that drivers are getting ripped off at the gas pump right now? I mean, gas prices have gone down a little bit uh, lately, but you know, with these record profits being raked in by oil and gas companies, what do you think about ga- what gas what Canadians are paying at gas prices at the gas pump right now? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty clear that these companies will charge whatever people can handle and take the profits and give them to their shareholders. And that means that, you know, people just trying to get out for their summer vacation are paying more. And uh, the people who own the stock in these companies, which I certainly don't, and I don't know many people who do, are making record profits to pay for uh, summer vacations that are far more lavish than uh, you and I could ever dream of. So, Cody, I think- Cody, what do you say to that? I mean, first and foremost, many people's retirement plans, pension plans are going to hold some Canadian oil and gas stocks. Um, Canadian oil and gas is, is a climate leader, reducing emissions, like I said, investing in renewables, working with uh, in Indigenous communities who support coastal gas link, majority also support Trans Mountain. The Canadian government helping Trans Mountain get built after all of the obstructionism, uh, I'm looking at you, Peter, and other groups that have caused the cost to escalate so severely, that is a strategic decision so Canada can maximize the value of our resource selling to the whole world for the best price. And if we don't invest in oil and gas today, we're going to have even more shortages in the future. When the U.S. did a windfall tax in Jimmy Carter's uh, administration, they found after the fact that it decreased production, causing the U.S. to rely more on foreign sources that, as we all know, do not have the same standards for protecting people, for protecting the planet, and those okay. foreign producers do not benefit Canadian families, period. Okay. All right. It's our excessive oil profits tax debate with my guests, Cody Batters-Hill and Peter McCartney. Tons of phone calls. Sam and Sam and Arm. Hi, Sam. Go ahead. Hey, yeah, I... Uh... Just to the fella who's talking about these shareholders who are making all this money, like, who are these shareholders to you? Is this just, like, I'm a, I'm a shareholder, and I'm not an ultra-wealthy person, but I do see benefit when the companies I invest in do make profits. It's called investing. Peter, what do you say to him? Yeah, I mean, I think um, the amount of shares you probably own compared to uh, Jimmy Patterson and the, and the wealthiest people in this country is not much. Um, I would say that, uh, you know, the shareholders of oil companies tend to be Bay Street hedge funds who are willing to take on the risks of a massively volatile uh, commodity. And, um, you know, it's it's not low-income people who are struggling to put uh, gas in their car and food on their tables and a roof over their heads. It's the, it's the people who are getting richest from these dividends are the people who can most afford to uh, to forego these profits. Cody, you want to weigh in on that? Yeah, I mean, if we're going to tax these windfall profits, then I guess we're going to have to give them all money when oil goes negative and the industry is struggling. And let's be honest, you don't get to oppose pipelines like Peter does, do. which causes delays, which increase the cost, and then complain about the cost because you're a part of the problem. We need to invest in this country so that we have more jobs, so we can reduce the cost of living, so that we can support all Canadian families and be pragmatic about energy demand and resource reality. Let's go to Daryl on the line in Coquitlam. Hi, Daryl, go ahead. Yes, I would like your guest, Peter, to definitively definitively define what he means by excessive profit. And would he apply that to all publicly traded corporations? Loblaw Group of Companies, C 
CN Rail, CP Rail. And the vast holders in the energy sector of those shares are pension funds that pay dividends to pensioners. So if you could ask Peter what, what his definition of all that is. Okay, okay, Peter, go ahead. Yes, the definition that folks have been using around the world, and they've done this in several European countries, they've passed it through the United States House, is excess profits um, over the amount that these companies made from the last decade, uh, before the pandemic, before global supply chain issues and, um, and the war in Ukraine. And, you know, there is a long history of taxing companies during a time of crisis who are getting rich off of that crisis. Um, so absolutely, I think we should be taxing law laws. Uh, we actually already brought in an excess profits tax for the banks this year, um, 15% over that uh, amount of money that they made in the last decade, because we recognize that they had to contribute to uh, to solving the crisis that they are currently getting rich off of and making okay. it a little easier for people to bear it. Back to the phone lines, David in North Vancouver. Hi, David, go ahead. Hi, I'm just listening to that, Peter, and his comments are creative at best. And the talk about tar sands in Fort McMurray. There is no tar sands, or excuse me, there are no tar sands. It's oil sands and all these dividends that these people are getting, and we should tax them. The taxes are paid by the people that receive dividends. So when they get more from the oil companies, the government gets more. Like, it's, it, he lives in a dream world. Okay, d- d- Peter, what do you say to that? Uh, I mean, Suncor was the first people to name the tar sands the tar sands, so I'll, I'll put that one aside. But, um, you know, in terms of capital gains taxes, one of the lowest taxes we have uh, in comparison to, um, you know, the, uh, an excess profits tax, it would not be nearly as much. And so, you know, what we're saying these companies aren't investing in creating jobs. They're not investing in renewable energy. They're not investing um, in, you know, even more supply. What they're doing is paying their shareholders record profits. And we should be able to uh, to take some of that and help the people out who are no longer able to afford their product. Cody, go ahead. Peter, why would they want to invest in more production when you vilify the industry and the Canadians who are trying to feed their families? This industry is one of the largest investors in renewables. What you said is absolutely false. We've got so much obstructionism in this country, and you've got all these callers saying that they're receiving dividends, their grandmas are receiving dividends, our pensions are receiving dividends. The taxes are being paid. This industry is generating so much for communities across this country, and yet you still want to shut down pipelines and make things more expensive. It's not pragmatic, and it's not fair to Canadians. Peter, go ahead. These pipelines have nothing to do with the gas that goes into your car. Trans Mountain is 100% for export to Asian markets. Um, you know, it, it, there is no gas that's being refined here in Canada because it's more profitable to ship it somewhere else, refine it there, and then import it from the United States. Um, no, so I don't, I don't, I don't know what I don't know what Cody is talking about when he thinks that you know the pipelines that we are fighting are actually going to deliver uh, oil and gas. Energy East, Energy East is a great example, and just increasing the cost of all these pipelines that you're then complaining about. This industry, okay. all industries, renewables as well. It's very important for Canadian families. We got to work Thank together you. and be honest. Thank you, guys, for a really good discussion. I'd love to keep it going. We're up against the clock. Thank you to both of you. Corey Batters, Hill Canada Action, Peter McCartney from the Wilderness Committee. Thank you for all your calls there.